Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey, you guys, today's episode is brought to you by Litbreaker. Litbreaker is an online advertising network for culture vultures, for people who like books, movies, music, art, photography, you name it. If you want to reach these people, go to litbreaker.com and you can advertise on a bunch of great websites in the culture sphere. Do you understand what I'm saying? You can advertise on all of them at once. Get your message out to people who would be receptive. Or if you want to, you can advertise piecemeal. You can pick the sites in the network that you want to advertise on. Do you understand? It's very user-friendly. For more information, check out litbreaker.com. Litbreaker, it's an online advertising network for culture vultures. Go and advertise on it. Oh, my God. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done I think it's really beautiful. Jesus, dude, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible. You know, it's like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listy. Just one person at just one time. Right. All right, everybody, here we go again. This is it. This is other people. This is now happening in a new location. This is still happening in Los Angeles. Uh, hello, I'm Brad Listy. It's good to be with you. I appreciate you tuning in. Uh, I am recording here in my uh, new uh, podcast studio at my new uh, residence. I moved. For those of you who uh, listen regularly, who heard the last episode, you are aware of this. Uh, I'm now recording in a garage, which I know is very derivative, very uh, Mark Marin-esque, but that's the way it's working. My wife is sick of me recording in the house. We have a small child. Um, with, when I record in the house, that means my wife has to be responsible for keeping our daughter quiet. That gets old. So I am now in a detached garage, uh, which is good. I have my own little box that I'm in. The problem is that it is uh, poorly ventilated, poorly insulated, and uh, there's a lot of noise. So uh, you might hear stuff. You might hear me uh, complaining about leaf blowers, helicopters, cars, chainsaws, whatever. I don't know how it's going to work. It's a bit of an experiment, but that's where... Uh, that's where I am. That's where things are at this point in the history of the show. And, uh, you know, my guests, I guess I should say that, uh, before we get too far into this thing, my guests are, are, uh, Michael McGriff and JM Tyree. They are the co-authors of a story collection called our secret life in the movies, a terrific collection available now from a strange object, which is an indie press based down in Austin, Texas. It also happens to be the official December pick of the nervous breakdown book club 
uh, I think you should sign up for that club. It's a great way to support The Nervous Breakdown, great way to support this show. Go to thenervousbreakdown.com, click on Book Club in the menu bar. It's $9.99 a month. It's less than the cost of a book. You get a new book delivered to your door every 30 days. And uh, better yet, I, I interview all of the book club authors on this program. So you can read and then listen, or listen and then read. It's also a great gift idea. So, the move went well. It's good to be in this new place. It's a huge amount of work, as uh, you know, most of you probably know if you've ever moved. Endless boxes. I've been breathing dust for a week. So, it's just it's been busy and exhausting. I have a litany of complaints. <laughs> but underneath it all, I'm uh, happy. And uh, on top of it, uh, I've got to go to Palm Desert this weekend. I'm doing a guest uh, lectureship at the UCR Palm Desert uh, MFA program out in, you know, Palm Springs. So uh, with this in mind, with the move in mind, with the guest lectureship in mind, and with uh, the holidays approaching, uh, for the foreseeable future, this show is going to be on a one, one new episode a week schedule. I apologize, but that's just how it's got to be. There's just too much happening. And uh, new episodes will air on Wednesdays until further notice. And I got to see if this garage works. I mean, is this really going to work? Is the noise factor going to be uh, limiting? We'll see. But I'm in a garage. And you know what? I'm almost 40 years old. I do a podcast. I should be in a garage. This is where garages are a natural place for podcasting to happen. It really is the most uh, fitting venue when you think about it. it. Smells weird in here. Hey, everybody. If you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing, it's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. My guests, once again, are Michael McGriff and J.M. Tyree, and uh, their story collection is called Our Secret Life in the Movies, and uh, it's a little bit of a different format, two guests at once, and I hope it's easy to follow. I tried to make it so, and I had a great time talking with these guys. Uh, so here they are, Michael McGriff and J.M. Tyree, and that book, one more time, is called Our Secret Life in the Movies. <laughs> You know, I guess I'll start with Josh. Like, Josh, uh, you know, you write under the name J.M. Tyree. Uh, wh- where are you at right now? I'm in uh, Washington, D.C., suburbs of Washington. Okay. And then Michael McGriff, where are you? I'm in Austin, Texas. Okay. So you guys live remotely, and have you? did you live remotely as you were writing Our Secret Life in the Movies? 
Well, um, um, yeah, yeah. Why Josh, why don't you start? We were roommates, actually. Um, we had our first creative writing jobs teaching at the creative writing program down at Stanford University. Um, and we were living together in a shared apartment. And uh, we started watching movies. And then we started writing about the movies we were watching. And then to our shock, it developed into a, this book. Okay, so like, what, what was the initial undertaking, Michael? You guys sat down and said, we're going to watch every single movie in the Criterion Collection. Uh, we did, and um, the first movie we started with was a documentary, 1968 documentary by William Greaves, American filmmaker, uh, called Symbiopsychotaxoplasm. And this is a meta documentary with about five or six layers, and it's shot in split screens with um, multiple points of view from multiple camera crews. And we kind of let that guide the making of the book doing sort of a dual screen within the book and having multiple points of view and multiple storylines. And um, that was kind of our big inspiration. The big, big angel in the room was William Greaves when we were writing. And that, and the name of that documentary again, Symbiopsychotaxoplasm. All right. And that was the sixties, right? <laughs> 1968 is shot in central park. There you go. Great. Great movie. Okay, so Josh, like when you when you uh, you know start this project, you start to watch you know all these movies. Like, were you setting a schedule? Were you guys like deciding that okay, we're going to do three movies a day? Like, how do you how do you do that? That's a lot of cinema. Yeah, it was kind of one of those obsessive, crazy pizza box projects. Really, we didn't think it would get very far. I think we got a lot further than we thought we would, but we certainly didn't finish watching all the films that we wanted to see. There are hundreds in the collection. Um, and so maybe two or three movies a day, whenever we could. Um, at that point, the, the films blur together. The films blur into your dreams. You start dreaming about the places in the films. You start dreaming about the characters in the films. And uh, they really do become part of your life. And um, basically how it worked was like, one of us would sort of take the lead if something in, in a movie sparked, you know, inspiration or memory or a what if or a tall tale or a supernatural possibility. Um, if something really good came out of that process, um, then uh, we'd share these sketches with each other and the other would try to write something that sort of matched it or, or riffed off of it or, or paired with it in some way. Okay, so and I, I want to get further along uh, on that point, but before we get there, um, Michael, I guess I'll ask you. You know, I, I'm, I'm aware of the Criterion Collection. I think most of us are, and there's a certain cachet that films who that make the Criterion Collection have. It seems to be like some sort of uh, is it is it imprimatur? How do you pronounce it? Imprimatur. Um, you know, it, it gives like a stamp of approval. Like this is a fancy. Uh, film with serious intentions like do you, do you guys i mean do you guys agree first of all uh, michael and then also uh do, did you guys ever find out like who's picking these films who is criterion i maybe i should know this but i you know i have no idea how that happens oh that's a great question i don't know I, as far as i can can tell they're a super secret genius clandestine operation <laughs> and uh, i'm not sure if fancy is the right word i think it's how whatever they deem to be innovative for whatever reason, whether it's technology or theme or, um, you know, 
social social message how, however it is they're categorizing these films um yeah i mean i gotta be it's, honest it's working it's working it's amazing I've, I've never seen one that i wasn't blown away by wow okay see i'm different i like i like a lot of the films but sometimes i'll, I'll, I'll be like oh this made the criterion collection and i'll turn it on and i'll be like what the fuck is going on you know <laughs> maybe I have, a, I have a limited tolerance for the avant-garde but um, well, you know, you know, Brad, they're not all highbrow. They've got the Blob, and they've got um, they've got Equinox, which is a crazy science fiction horror movie, and they've got Carnival of Souls, which is a t- another piece of horror madness. Yeah, so- that's that's more my speed. I need to watch the Criterion like lowbrow collection, you know. <laughs> So, okay, and so then I wanted to ask you as well, because this, I, I, you know, it, it feels like um, a multimedia project. I think it's a fair, fair thing to say, even though the final product mm. is, a, uh, is a book and it's very analog. Um, mm. But, you know, I love creative projects that are sort of accidental outgrowths of passion projects or, you know, whatever it is. You're trying to kind of uh, give yourself an education in cinema and, and to inspire yourself, you know, I would imagine, and then suddenly... Um, you're collaborating on a book and now here we are talking about it and it's a real object in the world. So I'm interested in knowing more, uh, Josh, I'll start with you, about the transition from, oh, this would be a fun project and something interesting to give ourselves to do. Uh, I'm interested in getting from that point to, oh my God, we're working on a book and we understand what it is. You know, how do you, how, do you, how did you get there? Oh, such a great question. I mean, um, it's one of those things where, um, it kind of grew organically at the beginning. Um, you know, it started out as a little pile of leaves and then it just grew from there. I think we expected it to become something much shorter, like a bundle of short stories, maybe 10 pages. Um, then we just kept adding to it and we, we kept adding to it and we started to realize, oh my God. God, like maybe this could become a book and maybe we could order them in a chronological fashion so that they tell a certain fragmented set of stories that the reader could actually follow from beginning to end. Yeah. And, and then, uh, Michael, you know, uh, when, when it comes to working in a pair, um, you know, that's not the typical arrangement for literature. Usually it's a solitary endeavor. Uh, there's much loneliness. <laughs> Um, but you guys were working in tandem. Like, was it always a, a you know a seamless creative collaboration? Did you were you guys ever at loggerheads over certain stories or points or directions that the book could have gone? You know, you know, the only frustration uh, I think I can speak for both of us was when the other person wrote something totally astounding, and then you know, say Josh writes something great. I was standing there saying like, oh my god, like what am I gonna do? Um, but I think. You know, I think um, for me anyway, the process was was great because we wrote them, you know, over the course of a few years. We wrote, you know, probably the first draft of the book. But um, just having knowing that there was a deadline or even if it was imaginary, thinking of someone else out there writing, you know, and trying to keep up with them really like took the the pressure off. You just had to produce. And, you know, this book, the. The, the end product is quite short. We wrote tons and tons and tons of short stories. So how many? Yeah, how uh, many did, did? How many didn't make the cut? Oh, tons! I don't know how many. I mean, <laughs> in the the work that we shared with each other 
was quite a bit. And then on our own, I know we each wrote, you know, dozens and dozens of more but sketches. But, and, and Josh, like I'm, I'm looking here, you know, like it sounds like you guys are on good terms. Like after, you know, creatively collaborating <laughs> on a book, there's no lingering resentments. There's no like, like, like I'm thinking of like the tension between Mick and Keith and the Rolling Stones, which is a, a lofty comparison. There's nothing like that. You guys aren't like, there's not a reason why one of you is living in D.C. and one of you is living in Austin, you know. <laughs> It's a very flattering comparison. I cannot accept on any level, except for one, maybe, which is the analogy of music, where, you know, it just, there's something that comes together in a, in a group, you know, like, I always think of the Beatles in this regard, not comparing us with the Beatles, of course, but just in the sense that there's a specific arrangement of people at a specific time, and something wonderful just seems to arise from it. I think there's a kind of... Um, I don't know. There's a sort of there's a bit of an egolessness in our decision to um, drop our names from the stories, and that may have helped us um, quite a bit in our cooperation. We also didn't really um, mess with each other's stories too much. We didn't do a lot of major revision on each other's stories. We just sort of accepted. Yeah, but let me interrupt you there because this is an issue that I think might come up, um, you know, when you're writing in tandem is trying to create uh, a fluidity of voice or were you, or were you trying to create a fluidity of voice? Did you hope that there was some, um, you know, some different, like noticeable differences between uh, like, you know, the JM stories and the Michael stories, or was it something that you guys Mm. weren't concerned about? Like Michael, do you want to speak to that? Sure. You know, we actually didn't talk too much about it. Um, as we started, uh, writing, these stories, what we noticed was coincidentally that we were writing about our childhoods. We were both came of age in the 1980s. So a lot of the imagery was, um, you know, set in the eighties. Um, it just happened, but there were so many natural parallels that the stories started to fit together. And I think just stylistically, we relied on our own impulses to go our own ways. And, um, so there's both a connectedness and a separation in the voices in the book that I think just, accidentally works really well and if we had tried to do that i think the book would have been a disaster um but it just kind of it just kind of worked out that way and i think you know looking at it as a book now i I think it owes a lot of its final movement to uh to our editors at a strange object um uh joe myers really helped us figure out how to arc the book with the narrative uh in, in a better more interesting way we took out probably 12 pages of work from the final draft that really uh, brought the book together. Wow. So by, by taking things out, I think the book actually got bigger and more expansive. Well, yeah, a good editor, yeah, you know, doesn't often get enough credit. Sure. So, okay, so, and you talk about the 80s. You guys both grew up in the 80s. Like, are we roughly the same age, like uh, born in the 1970s? Yeah, exactly. Okay, so, uh, Josh, where are you from? I'm from the suburbs of Madison, Wisconsin. All right, so kind of a like uh, like all American childhood. I'm picturing outside of there, outside of um, th- that was the milieu. Although my family was very different from that. How so? Um, we uh, a blended family. Um, I have uh, three half brothers, or I should say, two half brothers and one uh, foster brother. Um, so we're we're a bit out of the mainstream for for the milieu that we were living in right 
And then, uh, like, you know, and then, Michael, what about you? Where are you from? Sure. I grew up in a logging town on the southern Oregon coast called Goose Bay. On the southern, Just, on the southern what coast? Uh, or- yeah, southern Oregon coast. Oh, okay. Like Goonies territory. Uh, yep, Goonies territory. For sure. <laughs> All right, see, there's the 80s right there. <laughs> um, okay, and then what was that like? Were you, were your father a logger? Uh, yeah, he worked in the wood products industry and uh, blue collar Blue collar household. It's a very small town, sixteen thousand people. Everyone worked in the woods. And what, and what is or it? Was fishing. And what is it about the eighties? Because like, there's a. I mean, I don't know if you guys feel this. I mean, probably you do since you wrote this book together. But uh, it does evoke like a really strong sense of nostalgia in me. Uh, I guess maybe everybody feels that way about uh, the the decade when they were growing up, and you know, in single digit years or whatnot. Or maybe maybe not everybody, but a lot of us do. Like. What do you guys think about the 80s, having, having written this book and having kind of focused your creative attention um, on, uh, you know, on that period and, and really kind of reflecting on it in this book? Yeah, I mean, there's certain markers, you know, indelible markers, like, that are from the largest scale to the smallest from the 80s. And, you know, it goes from the fall of the, the wall to uh, the advent of slice, probably. <laughs> the advent of slice. <laughs> I yeah, remember yeah. slice. The, the, the now defunct slice. Slice has been defunct for a long time, right? I think they. This may be an urban myth I'm perpetuating, but I think it's still sold in India. Okay. But anyway, I remember when it showed up and people were sort of hired to go out and promote it by putting it in people's. Uh, driveways and stuff like that. Do you guys remember? Do you guys remember the Pepsi Challenge? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember well, going to, going to the grocery store and there being like you know representatives from the Pepsi Cola company, <laughs> nice doing the blind taste test. Like, is it Coke or is it Pepsi? And like you know, that was a big deal. The Cola Wars. <laughs> the Cola Wars, exactly. So, um, so but yeah. So, what about the eighties? Was it the was it the Cold War? Was that like it? Mm. Was that the, at the ground of what you guys were? working from or is there some other aspect of the decade that you feel thematically like worked its way into these stories jeez i i think well the cold war is or at least so the anti-soviet tail end of the cold war is definitely the one of it's probably its own character in our book and i think that and there was also the strange sort of fear of satanic cults and um that took over the eighties for a while. That's one of the themes. Uh, don't, don't talk, don't talk to strangers, <laughs> you know, absolutely. And, right. and I think it, one of the things that marks the book is that, I mean, the eighties people who grew up in the eighties, I mean, that was the, we're the last generation to grow up without the internet. Right. And, um, I think that that's its own, uh, I mean, that's it. Isolation is one of the, themes of the book being alone being alone in your community and then well see i i feel grateful to have grown up without the internet i honestly am grateful to have the memory of what it was like before being online all the time and like staring at my phone like i think that's a lucky thing in a way i agree totally yeah so uh josh like growing up uh you know i know you said your your family was a little bit outside the milieu for the town that you were in and the era that you were living and whatnot but uh like what were you like as a kid were you writing from a young age you know, I was, um, and uh, I, I think it all starts with things like Stephen King at that time. Again, another big '80s cultural marker. Sure. Um, you know that that this there's the night where my mom catches me reading Pet Cemetery 
um, you know, under the blanket with my flashlight, um, copy that I've borrowed from my uncle. Um, and she's, she forbids me to read any more Stephen King. And so immediately I think, aha, this is what I want to do with the rest of my life. <laughs> right. <laughs> but was it, was it a religious household? Was she think you were getting into the occult or something? No, not at all. <laughs> oh, okay. Okay. Um, I, I, I see what you're getting at, but, um, I think it was maybe more. It was con- considered maybe trashy or something, or, or or overly scary. I'm not really, actually, not really sure why she was so upset about well, Pet Cemetery. Well, the title. I mean, if you're not familiar with the work, I mean, you see your your young child reading a book called Pet Cemetery. You're probably, <laughs> yeah, probably not exactly what you would want. <laughs> exactly. And so from there, it just gets into this idea of the you know horror was such a big thing in the '80s. Why was that? What were people so afraid of? What was good? What was the sort of toxic cloud hanging over that decade? Yeah, you know, it's interesting. I feel like the nuclear threat was something that like you know was embedded in my psyche from a young age i remember um we actually had air raid drills in my elementary school and like hit under our desks and stuff like that wow which is like very red dawn and uh seemingly unnecessary if you ask me as if that's going to protect you if like you know if all out nuclear war happens i don't think like a, a first grade desk is going to help but um you know but i regardless of that it was in the air and i mean talk about cultural markers i feel like red dawn is another one um i don't know if that one if that movie hit you guys but that was like you know the russians they're gonna come and they're gonna invade and split families up and create concentration camps and you know that's a that's sort of a uh you know that that captured my imagination as a kid let's put it that way Absolutely. <laughs> so, Michael, uh, what about you? You said you grew up in a logging town and on the coast of southern Oregon, and you had like kind sure. of a blue-collar upbringing. That, de- sure. that doesn't necessarily provide the most direct line to uh, a literary life all the time, but like, how did you fall into books? Uh, well, it did for my sister. She was a huge reader and was totally involved with books, and and I never, I never read any books when I was a kid. Um, you know, it was just like a, a land outside, dirt bikes and BMX bikes and exploring in the woods and stuff like that. So I had a, you know, very creative, you know, life in some ways, but it wasn't a literary, literary childhood in, in any way at all. Was it, I mean, was it beautiful? It seems, sounds like I'm imagining like a Goonies-like town that you lived in. Is that where you lived? Uh, yeah, yeah. It looks exactly, that was shot up in Astoria, which is about five hours north, but but yeah, look, just like that, you know, tons of trees and fog and rain and, you know, and, and, pirate pirates and things. And you guys uh, had the run of the place. You could just kind of like, uh, you could just leave the house in the morning and come back when the sun set. Yeah, sure. If we grew up in the woods. It was great. Um, I don't feel, I mean, b- beautiful. I'm not sure. It's full of clear cuts and logging roads and tractor tires buried in the muck and, you know, right. So just m- uh, mowing down the forest, the old growth. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> Um, all right, but then eventually, like what? You made the transition. At what point did you get the bug? Yeah, uh, I was. I went to community college in my hometown, and I had this great uh, writing teacher, John Noland, and he was kind of an old, old countercultural hippie. Had us reading Brad again and Neruda and Robert Bly. It was like I landed on Mars. It was awesome. So I got hooked. That, got hooked in community college. That was it. Okay. And so, that was it. And so, and then you guys met at Stanford. We did. Yeah. Okay. So how did you get to there? So uh, we were both um, fellows in the Stegner Fellowship program there, in the Creative Writing program. Oh wow. Uh, 
Mike was in the poetry side and I was on the fiction side. That's a pretty good spot. That, I mean, I've heard that that's a, among the fellowships that one can get. That's a pretty cushy deal. <laughs> it, it was great. No complaints. That's for sure. Yeah. I mean, you can kind of, I mean, like it, cause it varies from school to school, but like, that's the one where you can really just hang out and write. Like you actually get to focus on the work and they pay for it. Right. Yeah. I don't think this book could have even gotten close to being written without the support that we received okay. from Stanford. Yeah. Okay. So how, but you had to go somewhere before Stanford. If that, that's a graduate fellowship, right? So where were you before then, Mike? Um, I, went, I went to community college, then uh, I went to school at the University of Oregon, and uh, then the University of Texas for art school, and then um, then I met Josh at Stanford after that. What was art school? Uh, creative writing. Oh, it was. Did you get an MFA yeah. down there? I did, yeah, at the Michener Center for Writers. Oh, you did, okay. And then you applied for the Stegner, and you got it. I did, yeah, that's right. Does Wallace Stegner have that much money? He's funding a lot of kids, or a lot of young writers. Uh, I'm think- not sure. I think there's multiple sources. My my fellowship was in part from uh, the Truman Capote estate. Okay. Yeah, he's got a he's got a bunch of writing fellowships out there too. Yeah. <laughs> okay. That's nice. Um, and then, what about you, Josh? Like, how did you? Where did you go before you went to uh, do your Stegner fellowship? In terms of education, I was um, at Middlebury College, um, which was another great place for writers. And after that, I was lucky enough to receive a scholarship to study in the UK for a couple of years at Cambridge University. Wow. Okay. And I was a religious studies person. No shit. Why? What, what's uh, what's the fascination there? I was really interested in Buddhism, and I just wanted to study it for a couple of years, and I'm really glad I did. It was just a wonderful experience. Okay. So what did you? Because I'm interested in Buddhism too, but like uh, I don't think I'm as intensely interested as you, or I haven't like taken it to the, to the <laughs> educational level, but like. You do that for two years in Cambridge. Like, do you come out of it like uh, practicing Buddhist, meditating, and all that kind of stuff, or you do you have like more of like a clinical or academic like uh, relationship with it? For me, it was more um, the history of ideas um, and the philosophy and the kind of amazing connections between poetry and philosophy and the history of ideas and in, in those cultures, which I really only had the chance to scratch the surface of so when you say the in, the in, the amazing relationship between poetry and philosophy is that with in, with respect to buddhist culture in particular or more broadly speaking well i mean i don't know enough to comment on that in any serious scholarly way it was just an interest of mine uh to study the way in which um some of the zen tradition um some of those uh, thinkers express themselves in the form of poetry. Right, right. I think that still happens. I mean, there's still some monks out there who write, they write verse and calligraphy and all that kind of stuff. Um, so, but you didn't come out of it like meditating or going to like uh, Zen centers and whatnot? <laughs> um, I, I love all that stuff, um, but it's not a big part of my my active life right now it's mostly an intellectual pursuit for me are you a buddhist oh my goodness brad you're really putting me on the spot (laughs) i just i'm curious um i guess i i'm glad for the question i i'm hesitating because it's such a serious question or it sounds serious right no i mean just Um, because i feel like there's like you know there's the jubus there's i like 
Harold Ramis used to say he was Buddhist, like ISH, <laughs> which I think is maybe what I am. You know, I have no idea what the hell I am, but I, I feel like the Buddhism offers a kind of logic that like other faith traditions, um, or at least the ones I'm aware of, don't necessarily. You know, and uh, I don't know. I can I, I instinctively have been drawn to it since I was a, a young person, but I've never once been inside of a Zen center or a temple or anything. I just I do a lot of meditating. Oh, that's nice. Um, and, and, yeah. and a lot of reading. I mean, it's not, you know, I, it's, it's, it's somewhat informed, but I just, I have this fear of going to like a meditation retreat or a Zen center and like all the people being very weird, which sounds silly because I would be one of them. And I think I kind of <laughs> implicate myself. One of the things I loved about studying religion in general was the deep connections in all of these traditions between art and religion. And, and uh, I, I just thought that was a remarkable thing to, to learn more about. Okay. So, Michael, uh, wh- what about you? Like, are you, uh, what's your faith tradition? None. <laughs> uh, um, uh, we never went to church or anything as a family. And, you know, my parents both w- worked, uh, worked and worked and worked. So Sundays were filled with work. So that's just what we did. Yeah. There's no- worked on the house and things like that, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, but no, like, uh, you don't have an advanced degree in any kind of religious situation. No, no, I don't. Okay. So, um, and then you guys wind up uh, at Stanford together, or, and like, you were on different tracks. So, were you guys in classes together? How did you meet there? How did we meet, Mike? Well, we were in the same incoming uh, group group of writers, and there's only ten ten a year, so five poets and five fiction writers. So, we were a tight knit bunch. I mean, I think. Most of our friendships were formed early on during the sport sports seasons. Right, just watch, uh, watching. We had a lot games. of people watch watching basketball and uh, college football and, and everything else. So we made. A lot, I mean, there was so, so many talented writers in and around that program. It was yeah. Who are you? Hard, who are you? Hard not to make friends. Who are you in there with? Who are some of the other writers that you guys were fellows with? Oh boy, where to start? Um, Jasmine Ward. Um, Skip Horak, Molly Antipole, um, on the poetry side, Mike? Yeah, it was Alexandra Teague, Jill McDonough, Andy Grace, Kristen Anderson, and myself. Wow. The poetry, it was, it was great. I, it was very interesting. You know, I think in some of these arts programs, you, you get a lot of huge egos and people end up hating each other. But in our cohort, we we all became fast friends and have stayed that way. It's been delightful, and now everyone's got lots of books, and it's totally fun to watch people you don't, publish books. And you don't ever, like you don't ever get jealous of somebody like I, I talked to Jasmine Ward on this show. She's obviously knocked it out of the park. Like you're are you ever like pacing yourself against someone like that? <laughs> no, not at all. No, <laughs> no. All right, not that you would admit on the show. It's hard. It's hard. You know, it's like there's that quote from uh, like I was talking about this with a friend the other day. And like there's that line from Gore Vidal where he says something like every time one of my friends succeeds, a little part of me dies. <laughs> Which, uh, you know, I, you everyone laughs when you hear it, because it, I think it contains at least a grain of truth. And like I hate that within I hate that within myself. You'll be like, oh, oh, really? That happened. You had. Oh, OK. And like there's a little pain. There's a, there is a little pain. And then you, you try to you try to put it away and cheer for the person and let the, you know, the better angels of your nature prevail. But um, I feel, right. I mean, that's a real thing. Don't you think with writers? I don't think it's talked about much, but I think not just writers, maybe people in general. But, um, you know, for the purposes of this show, sometimes that happens with uh, other people in this field when you see see something good happen. No. I don't 
don't. Th- well, I get what you're saying. For me, it's I have a slightly different perspective, maybe because my family is very sports obsessed. Uh, my younger brother is a college basketball coach, and where uh, at VCU? Okay, but is it Virginia Commonwealth? Yeah. Okay. Um, and uh, you know, there's probably more press coverage of one of his sort of winter games than there is of an entire writer's career. <laughs> right. <laughs> so um i think that puts things in perspective for me <laughs> yeah so i mean so he's a head coach of vcu yeah right, and yeah that's was he a great basketball player growing up he well to me he was yeah <laughs> uh i didn't know much about those things because uh, i was more of a literary type of type of guy but um he went to kenyan college my brother shaka okay and um He's the all-time assist leader um, at Kenyon College. So he played in Division Three, and then he, as a coach, he worked his way up from the basement, actually. He was a tape guy um, at Dayton um, in the basement as the fifth assistant, um, and he worked his way up over the years. Um, he's just a huge inspiration to me, oh, one wait, of my big Wait, wait, wait. One of my big heroes. It's all coming back to me now. Didn't VCU make a big run into the tournament a couple years ago? I mean, right? They, they certainly did, oh, yeah. and they certainly. He was celebrating. Cer- he was like a national hero. He was like getting all sorts of press, right? Yeah, that's my that's my brother Shaka. Oh. He's he's a one he's a wonderful guy. All right, Shaka. Well, yeah, no, and I feel like there's like a lot of schools maybe courting him, right? He's like got a, he's going to have a lot of opportunities if things keep going well, right? I think he loves Richmond. I think he loves where he is. Yeah. Okay. Well, I mean, there's something to say for that too. I mean, not to get too far off into sports tangents, but, I mean, if you're the head coach uh, at a university and you've got a good thing going, I always say, why would you ever leave? You're, like, the king of the town, you know? You're in one of these, like, nice college towns. It seems like a really good good job, you know? Seems like a good job to me, too. Yeah, right? I think it seems like a, <laughs> seems like a good job to any writer. So, um, Michael, I want to get back to asking about the Criterion Collection and about, um, like, what – watching all those films might have done to change your perspective on how literature is made, not only with respect to this book, but also with respect to future things you might be working on. Like did, did what, I mean, and I'll preface that by saying, um, or I'll, I'll add to that by saying that, you know, uh, it, it's very common for writers to be super influenced by television and film, which are, I think the dominant media, uh, of our, you know, our generation's lives for sure. Um, but, you know, did you find yourself, uh, you know, learning tangible, concrete things about how to make narrative art or how to make avant-garde narrative art by sitting through all these films? Like, did it give you something that you can actually articulate? Oh, absolutely. Um, I, I mean, this is one of the reasons, uh, Josh and I became such good friends in down in California was our shared obsession with, film and cinema movements and um, I've always loved and have gone to film to learn about how to make images and how to tell stories in non-linear non-narrative fashions and a a film is a huge inspiration to me okay and did you have like did you have a particular um, concern at all about trying to work you know avant-garde in literature I mean it's like it's hard enough to get a readership, but then you start doing a book that feels maybe uh, innovative uh, or experimental or whatever adjective you want to attach to it. And, you know, it can be a little bit harder to find readers with that. It can also be harder to find a publisher. Sure. You know, honestly, we didn't 
actually think too much about that when we were making the book. I think one of the things about being obsessed with, you know, strange art is that it gives you permission to do whatever you want. And you see lots of examples of things that seem way more bizarre than what you're working on. And we never really talked about the book in terms of its genre. It's kind of as genreless little floaty shape shifting collection. And, um, we just had faith that, you know, there was something there and that hopefully someone else would agree with us. That sounds like a very, uh, like, uh, well-reasoned or, or well-adjusted Zen approach. I'll give, jo- <laughs> sure. I'll give Josh credit for that since he studied Buddhism for two years. <laughs> well, it's sort of the, it's the kind of book where you, you think, well, obviously no one's going to publish this. Obviously sure. this is never, never in a million years will, will anyone read this. It, it can't possibly even be completed. It's a completely impossible project. Um, so that was very freeing in a way to not worry about commercial considerations. Um, and, and I think also we were sort of hearkening back to, I think, what we both think of as like a kind of golden era of experimentation um, in literature and in film. Uh, late 60s, early 70s, I think of people like um, Doris Lessing, J.G. Ballard, um, Burroughs even, um, Bartholomew, I mean, the list goes on and on. When you realize what these people were writing, it's complete madness. And, uh, you know, but the thing is, people really like it. Um, You know, people really enjoy it. And and it's sort of a law. It's something that's been a bit lost, I feel. Well, Um, let's talk about this, because this is the challenge, I think, uh, when it comes to working in an avant-garde mode and also wanting to reach people, um, you know, I can I can sometimes see the argument where people are like, "Oh my God, like this is so impenetrable," or it's only written for academics. And I, I can I can feel like that sometimes if I'm reading something, and uh, it's really hard to crack, or it just seems like it's it's actively trying to uh, elude me, or even worse, it feels like it's condescending to the reader or something like that. I think that does happen, um, but I also think that you know these experiments are necessary because I think that literature if it's going to remain vital, has to speak to its times. And the times we live in are certainly uh, multimedia times. And, you know, a lot is changing on that front. And I think literature should respond to it. But, you know, it, I, I think trying, mm. trying to strike a balance between um, experimentation uh, but also communication where you're, at, you know, you're actively trying to communicate with people in a way that's clear and direct somehow. Like, what, did you guys struggle at all with that? And I'll ask Michael, I guess, to respond first. Oh, did we struggle with that? Um, gosh, you know, I don't know. I mean, I think that's one of the, just to go back to the Criterion Collection, I mean, that's one of the things early on that I learned about learned about making art when I started writing is also when I started watching movies seriously. And, you know, watching the films of Tarkovsky or Bergman or Hollis Frampton, I mean, there are so many examples of things that are disconnected yet full of, sort of impenetrable imagery but it's driven by like deep humanity and deep feeling and i think as long as there's a connection between what's going on in art and a human experience no matter how remote or opaque i think people are really smart and really intuitive and um way way some people anyway (laughs) yeah i think i think you know i think of it with music all the time i mean you know People like all sorts of weird stuff, and I think they never just sit down and say to themselves, like, I'm into some really weird stuff. Like, 
I just listen to a song with 80 samples from obscure soul bands. I mean, if you stopped and actually vocalized the kind of art you were ingesting, I think it would be a lot more experimental and strange than you realize just on a daily basis. So, Josh, what, what about you? How do you feel about that, like the bridge between avant-garde and accessibility? Uh, so I think it's a great open question of our era. I mean, you mentioned technology, and I feel like uh, art probably does have to tr- at least try to colonize some of these new forms and formats and platforms. I'm not going to embarrass myself by pretending to know a lot about technology, but I think it's an important project for art to try to explore. Um, on the other hand, if it's not coming from a humanity if it's not coming from the most deep feelings if it's not coming from the most sort of messed up parts of the soul then it probably won't connect with anyone and one of the things that's been remarkable for me to hear about um, from readers of this book and some reviewers as well is that the people who like it the most know the movies the least Actually, does someone have does someone have a chainsaw in your in your house? I'm really I'm hearing like a chainsaw. Mike, are you hearing that? I am. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I don't hear a thing. You don't. Weird. Well, maybe it's just the connection. Uh, but anyhow, um, you know. I apologize. No, it's okay. It's okay. <laughs> it, there's like there were lots of chainsaw movies in the '80s, so maybe it's like. <laughs> um, but with regard to um, you know continuing the along the avant-garde accessibility question. Uh, and also, you know, literature and its response to technology, which, you know, I, I think a lot of us feel and think about as we sit down to work. Um, you know, when you when you look to the future, like, are you guys um, individually or as a uh, collaborative pair, uh, you know, do you spend a lot of time thinking about, like, the future of literature and, like, trying to be on the cutting edge of that? Is that something you're interested in, Mike? Uh, no, not not in any, any way. I think, you, you know... Adam Zagieski, the Polish poet, said the only consistent thing in literature is people's desire to be on the cutting edge of it in their forts. This is one of the boring tropes of literature. And, and I think if people are always making art and, you know, whatever era you're in, people make good stuff and bad stuff. And some gets read, some doesn't. And who, who knows how it works? And I think if those kind of preoccupations can be a little boring. Uh, what about just wanting to make it new? Like, do you ever do you ever feel like, man, you know, so much has been done. I don't want to be, um, I don't want to repeat somebody else's mistakes or try to, you know, like, do you ever think about, like, I'd like to make a book that really does feel new? You know, not really. I mean, I think, you know, I'm in love with so many other writers and um, I know, Josh and I talked a lot about Richard Brodigan when, you know, inside and outside of this book. And, you know, I, I love uh, thinking about what other people have done and trying to imitate it or, you know, be in conversation with it in some way. I think it's fun and uh, inevitable. Well, yeah. So. yeah. I mean, it's like you're, there, you're always going to be standing on somebody's shoulders. But, like, Josh, do you, um, do you have any, like, feeling for that or thoughts along those lines? Like, is that something you're interested in doing? I, I think the way that I would try to answer that question would be just to think about my interactions with some of my students, undergraduates now, who um, some of them might actually be composing their work or their stories or their poems for the first time using their, their cell phones. And, sure, yeah. You know, maybe they're adding pictures to it. They're doing things that I can't even imagine doing that I think are going to be much more interesting 
then I feel very primitive in my approach to these things, but I'm definitely interested in it. I just feel that I don't have any mastery over it. Um, but I think it's very important, and it's actually a point of disagreement between Mike and I. Mike finally, is not interested. Finally. <laughs> He's not. I've been trying to get you guys into a fight for 40 minutes. My God. Uh, Mike, is, Mike is a real Luddite. Yeah. That's not a bad thing, though. I mean, I think that I have envy for, you know, I, I do have like this, like, you know, pre-technology nostalgia. There's and there's part, you know, part of me, uh, or, you know, will entertain a, a fantasy from time to time of like giving it all up, you know, chucking, <laughs> chucking the phone and trying to go as analog as possible. But it's hard to detach. Yeah, I mean, you know, I'm, I like the physical world. I, I also like Facebook. I mean, okay. you know, what, I was going to say, what can you do? Uh, you, so wait, but you're not, you're a Luddite, but you're not like, you're not like using like a rotary dial phone. You have a cell phone. No, no, I mean, I, in terms of, um, in terms of art making, I mean, I think whatever tools you have, you should use. Uh, I do, you know, see the Grim Reaper on the horizon with ebooks and print on demand and, Google stealing people's books and putting them on the internet and people making PDFs of books and giving them out to their students for free. And I think that there's a, this is scary time for people actually holding books in their hands. Yeah. Potentially. What do you guys see for the future? Like, what do you, do you think about it? Like, do you think books are uh, toast? Do you think I have this, my sense is that we've sort of hit the, the ceiling on eBooks and now people are starting to maybe appreciate, um, you know, the analog, real, tactile book experience more than they used to because they're so scattered otherwise from screen to screen? Yeah, I think you're right, Brad. I mean, maybe it's just the pleasures that you grew up with or that I grew up with were just in contact with tangible books, and there's just, you're never going to be able to, you know, get that experience from a screen. I What I wonder, though, is whether amongst the new generation, whether that's true, Maybe they're having reading pleasures on their screen that, you know, will become their form of nostalgia when they think back to themselves. Oh, remember when there were actually screens before it was implanted in our brains? <laughs> right. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I keep thinking, too, like I, my wife uh, would kill me if she could hear this because I'm talking about it way too much. But I think driverless cars are the next frontier because not because uh, – it's safer. I mean, I guess those are going to be secondary concerns, but I think what's going to drive the driverless car revolution is that then people can be on the internet in their cars being advertised to everywhere they go. You go on a 12 hour road trip. You think about how many advertisements and shit you can buy on Amazon. And you know, like they're going to be pushing for that big time because right now it's like you're on an airplane and even that's going away, but that's like the one place where I can really read a book um, and feel like I get a really deep, read because you're sort of stuck there there's nowhere you can mm. go um i guess like the the toilet is sort of analog in that way i make that joke sometimes where it's like one of the last bastions of like you know solitary reading where you cannot be interrupted unless you know i guess unless you have a screen in front of you and then um you know and then the car i guess you can get in the car and listen to the radio but uh you can have some some solitude but i feel like that's coming you know they're going to want to have you in the car and I suppose you could read in the car, but it seems like it's going to be all about screens, unless I'm just being paranoid. <laughs> There's a great scene in um, uh, the documentary American Movie uh, by Chris Smith, where uh, the filmmaker uh, Mark Borchardt says, you know, shows him in his old Bu shitty Buick and, or whatever it is, going out to the airport parking lot in Milwaukee. And uh, he's just sitting in the car and he says, this is, this is the only place I can be 
where no one's trying to give me an IRS bill or is on the phone with me. And it just shows him in his fingerless gloves freezing his ass <laughs> off, working on a script. And I, I, I think that sacred space is totally essential to yeah, yeah. Is that, reading and writing. Is that is American movie Criterion Collection? It's not, but it should be. Yeah. God, it's a great movie. Yeah, yeah. Well, and uh, it's funny that you bring up writing in a car. I've talked to a writer on this show, Susan Strait, who uh, like wrote her, I mean, wrote, I think has written several of her novels, like pulled off to the side of the road in Riverside, California in a minivan. Wow. <laughs> because she's got a crazy, you know, she's got a crazy household filled with people and just can't get the peace. So she just drives out with a notebook and a pen, pulls over to the side of the road and works right there. That's so cool. Yeah. I mean, it can, I mean, sort of, you got to do what it takes, I guess. Um, so Josh, uh, you know, do you, did you have any additional thoughts with respect to how you see things going forward for the book? I mean, I know we kind of agree about eBooks hitting a plateau, but I mean, is anything going to change fundamentally? Can you envision, um, a future where, you know, uh, crowdsourced books happen or maybe more collaborative, a more collaborative literature happens or becomes more popular or do you see any other format changes or anything along those lines? I mean, I don't mean to paint you like too much of a futurist, but I feel like, um, you know, your book is working in a mode that feels uh, progressive. So maybe you would have thoughts here. I'd like to think that all of that and more is possible. And I, 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 I do think that, that our book, um, and certainly the fact of people even paying attention to our book wouldn't have happened maybe in the same way in the past. I think the internet has helped and social media and all those things that we tend to look down on as kind of trashy actually have serve a role and serve a function. I mean, I'd love to see stories invented on these platforms. I'd love to see collaborative works with multimedia and photographers and writers working together. I'd love for it all to be in um, beautiful online galleries. I think that would be really really cool and I think it's possible that the next generation um, might be able to accomplish some of those things but I think for all, well I won't speak for you all but for, for me I think I'm still stuck in the past I still want to read books on paper and I will always think of ebooks as being this kind of disposable stuff probably good for non for certain types of non-fiction or popular fiction and for re- for what I would call a real book or something I want to get deeply absorbed in that has its hooks in me, I just want to be away from anything with wires or wireless to it and just absorb in, into a, a, a paper book still. Yeah, no, I think I, that's one of the big uh, problems I have with e-books is that, you know, they're great if it, like I'm reading them at night in bed and like my wife wants the lights out, you know, that's kind of when I would go to it, but... I don't think it sticks as much. Like, I think if I read a book digitally, it's not as sticky somehow. Uh, whereas if I'm reading a book and turning the pages, I feel like I get a more immersive experience somehow. So. Absolutely. And, you know, all of the great things about ebooks that are just so cool and potentially revolutionary, just like searchable text, for example, being able to find that passage. Like, if you're reading Proust or something, that would be really handy, actually. To, to be able to actually find a specific phrase or passage would be really, really nice. But it doesn't stick. There's something about it, and I'm not sure exactly what it is, but it just doesn't seem to stick to the mind and the imagination as well. Especially as I get older, you know? Like, I feel like uh, nothing sticks as, as well as it used to. And I'm not, I'm not, <laughs> not, even, that, I'm not even that old, but, like, I was looking through some photos. Do you ever do this? I was looking through some photos uh, at my, uh, my parents' place, 
uh, over the holiday, and I was like looking at stuff. I'm in the photos uh, with like my nieces and stuff. I'm like, I have no memory of this. I have no idea where we are. I don't know why I'm there. <laughs> like, I don't know. Maybe I'm losing my mind. But <laughs> it, it all sort it all sort of goes. You know, you forget eventually. Um, so I, I want to talk about where you guys are now. I mean, obviously you've, you've parted ways, um, after, you know, living together and working on this book, like, um, like do you, do you guys have a plans to continue to work collaboratively or was this a one shot deal, Mike? Well, I don't know. Yeah. I mean, we're on the phone all the time and always bouncing ideas off of each other for our own projects. And, um, th- this process was so organic. I think if, if another organic things started sprouting out of the ground we'd probably feed it and put water on it yeah uh, yeah well sure okay but this is an interesting point because you know creative projects that do sort of happen spontaneously and are born of an enthusiasm and are sort of accidental um i I tend to think that that's uh tends to yield a better result and to be a more satisfying creative experience and then you know as you get going and you maybe you're relying on some or all of your income um you know, from your creative output, you can start to sit down at the keyboard or at the notebook and, and think to yourself, like, okay, well, I got, what do I write? I got to write something here. I got to produce something for the marketplace. And uh, that can be a bit onerous and that can take some of the fun out of it. So, you know, I, I don't know. I guess what I'm trying to say is how, how do you work through the balance, that balancing act between letting something happen organically and kind of letting the process uh, do its thing and, and following it versus like having a work ethic, you know what I'm saying? Like, um, and finding your, yeah. finding your inspiration at the keyboard. Like Josh, do you have any thoughts here? Well, I, I, the best way that I ever heard that put was this very freeing and inspirational thing that I heard Lydia Davis say once in a lecture. And she said, you know, I've been writing for many years and then uh, I sort of woke up or, or one day sort of realized I don't have to write that way anymore, she said. And I thought, oh, yeah, that's exactly it. Like, you don't have to write that way. You can actually write any way you like. Uh, there's no there's no shape to a story that you have to follow. And you can, oh, yeah, I mean, I mean, she's definitely living proof of that. But, like, there's no particular shape you have to follow, but your story does have to have a shape, Right. Even if it's a weird shape, even if it's like a, <laughs> even if it, even if it's like a rhombus or something. <laughs> yeah, you know that's I, I have no idea. I mean, I, you know, I just love, you know, I love reading books that capture my imagination. And when I look at those books, I just think, you know, this is strange. I remember reading uh, Sebald's The Rings of Saturn. What's one of my favorite novels, if you can call it that. And I mean, this book is just full of tortuous facts and side sort of thoughts and tangential moves and photos that aren't the things they say they are and uh, unreliable narration and meta structures. And I'm totally entertained by it. And it's a, it's a book that uh, seems uh, <laughs> strange and amazing. And and I think, well, he didn't give a shit if anyone, uh, you know talked about narrative structure so why should i are, are um, you worried are you, are you guys hoping to make do you, do you have any like fantasies of making a, a living from your creative work alone or is it, <laughs> or is it are you are you are you smarter than i am and do you have like a, a more practical approach 
Uh, well, I, I can say uh, absolutely not. I mean, that'd be cool, man. But uh, yeah, you're a poet, dude. No. You came in in poetry. No, you gotta have, yeah, you gotta have realistic expectations. <laughs> there's like what? I feel like there's like one poet per generation who makes any money, but it's always posthumously. Like their papers sell after they die. <laughs> <laughs> You know, I mean, is that accurate? I don't. I mean, I don't. I don't, mean, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I don't know any. I mean, I know very few writers, novelists included, that make make any money yeah. when all said done from their work, who are brilliant yeah. writers. Yeah. And uh, so that's freeing to me. I mean, it's like write what you want, and uh, you know, it's. Uh, I, I mean, I keep writing because I keep uh, interested in the things that I'm interested in, and I, w- I want to find language for that, and that that's that's the only. thing thing that i really care about yeah so and like this is like you got you know that this whole like sit down and watch all the criterion films that's the kind of thing a lot of people say but it's not the kind of thing a lot of people do um like like are you guys both that way are you both the kind of like follow through people who will have a weird idea and then go nuts and like obsess about it and see it all the way through or is like one of you pulling the other one along josh (laughs) uh Great question. I mean, I think that's the core of this book and this collaboration was very simply that I found someone who was as crazy and obsessive as I was, who was actually able to follow through. It's definitely one of those ideas that, you know, one has these ideas and then ideally they pass away the next day. Uh, but in this case, uh, it just got a hold of both of us. I think what you guys, yeah. I think what you guys should do. Like, <laughs> speaking of money and commercial uh, prospects, like what you should do next is you should both sit down and watch every single uh, porn movie by Vivid or some big porn company, and then write a book about that. No, Jesus Christ! I think that's a genius idea. <laughs> do, do, do you now? <laughs> you're welcome. To, you're welcome to that one, Brad. <laughs> I think someone uh, someone out there is going to steal that. I think I just struck gold. Uh, you, on the on that subject of commercial fiction, I think Stephen King has a really great comment about this in his book on writing, and um, he he says something to the effect of like, you have to write what you love. If you're writing for commercial reasons, it's going to be obvious to everyone, and that may not even be the best way to be a commercial success. Um, easy for so easy thought, for him to say. <laughs> As like, as like as like the Brinks truck backs up into his driveway, you know. Um, but I mean, you know, the thing about it though, and this is this is sort of a, a thing that I I struggle with is that, you know, I, how blessed is somebody like Stephen King because what he loves and what he's really good at and what he would do anyway, just happens to have like insane commercial appeal. Like he's an awesome popular storyteller. He has that instinct mm. and that ability, and I think for you know a great majority of writers who work in a less commercial vein or, you know, I, I don't mean to get too deep into categorizations, but like literary fiction, literary nonfiction, you know, like that, that, that sensibility, that sensibility obviously doesn't lend itself as well to, uh, selling tons of books, but I feel like, you know, personally, I feel sort of stuck with what I got. And once you sort of realize that, then you have, you have to have the good sense to adjust your, uh, expectations about uh, how much bread you can win with it. I mean, do you guys agree? Well, I think maybe this is a uh, romantic view, but I, I think that Stephen King would probably write those books whether they sold or not. Um, oh, I agree completely. But I just think, yeah, like, like talent-wise, and like it just so happens that what he loves and what he's good at just happens to have mass commercial appeal. And I don't, <laughs> I don't think, I don't think all of us have that. Like some people are really great, but their their audience, you know, is just a much much uh, shallower pool of people. 
not not shallow like from the like the spiritual sense you know just not as many people yeah <laughs> i don't know you know i actually never think about these kinds of things uh you know some people some people make some money and you know but that's true that's true all the time for everybody any field you know Mike, are you, I mean, yeah. I feel like you're so laid back, dude. Like that sounds great. Yeah. I need more of that. But, are you are you yeah. are you stoned right now? What's happening? <laughs> no. You're from Oregon. Yeah. You're from Oregon. You've probably been stoned since you were 12. Yeah, now it's legal. It's legal now. So uh, yeah, well, I think you know, coming from the poetry genre, um, you know, that's that's the only way you can feel. Yeah. Just, you know, you want to make some art. You make some art and. Uh, God, God only knows. Very few, few people actually ever end up reading. It's always, it's always interesting to yeah. me. It's interesting to me how it happens and for whom and why. And like, uh, you get down into the the muck of it, and I I find myself wrestling with the word luck. You know, like how big of a role does luck play? How much of this is effort and gamesmanship and good business sense? And you know, like it's like, oh, why why does it work for one person who's a great writer and then not for another person who's you know equally great if not better? You know, I don't know. I mean, I think this is the this is the sort of uh, marketplace disease that that a lot of writers get preoccupied with, and uh, you know, people this kind of thing leads people to ruin and <laughs> makes them stop writing. I think. I, uh, I think that's my problem. Yeah, you know, they try to fix. Yeah. It's just like I'll, they try to figure is, out this imagined game that is. Yeah, I don't know. I think it's all imaginary. I, th- I think I, it's all. I feel like imaginary. this is like a therapy for me. This is working. This is working well. I'm just gonna Imagine. maybe we can do a second hour. And just you guys can just talk to, talk me down. Um, so okay, you're now you, you've parted ways. You finished your fellowship, and now you live. Uh, uh, Josh, you live up in D.C. You said. Uh, That's right. What are you doing up there? I um. I I'm an associate editor at a literary magazine called New England Review. Ah, okay. And I also do some teaching uh, in the D.C. area. All right, you like it there? I love it. It is such a nerd's town. You know, if you want to get down into the nitty gritty of some documents or lost films or art things, that it's all here. Yeah. Well, yeah. And it's all and it's all free. So okay, and like you're in D.C. proper, uh, just outside. My sidewalks in D.C. Okay, but your door is not. My door is not. All right, and then Mike, you're in Austin. Uh, that's right. Yeah. Okay. Uh, good town. You you got your you did your MFA there and then went back. I did. Yeah, I love I love Texas. It's great. So you are you? What are you doing down there? What um uh, about the same as Josh? You know, piece together a couple of different little teaching jobs and um. Uh, in the spring, I'll be back at the University of Texas teaching a poetry class, which will be great. Um, but and how, did you, and how did you guys wind up with a strange object? Well, that that uh, process was uh, it took years actually. Uh, Jill Myers is one of the co-directors and publishers. Um, that's, at, that's an Austin-based indie, right? That's yeah. right, yeah. Um, and she's our editor. And um, she was formerly the editor of American Short Fiction. Gotcha. Um, and when she was editor there, she published a couple of my sort of wacky short stories. One of them was entitled um, uh, The Chronicles of the, the uh, History of the Cola Wars, actually. Um, Speaking of Pepsi, the Pepsi Challenge. <laughs> exactly. Um, so she's someone who's really 
interested in um, taking chances, taking risks, um, going out on a limb with with this uh, sort of experimental stuff. And I just think the world of what of what she and Callie Collins are doing down there at a strange object. Awesome. Well, I'll tell you what, guys, it's been uh, such a great pleasure getting a chance to talk with you and then happy to shine a light on your book uh, with the Nervous Breakdown Book Club. And I appreciate you taking the time, you know, and, uh, you know, giving uh, your thoughts and being so candid. And I wish you well on whatever's next. It'll be interesting to see if you collaborate again. (laughs) All right. Thanks so much. It's a pleasure. Great talking to you, Brad. Okay, guys, there you go. That is Michael McGriff and J.M. Tyree. Their story collection is called Our Secret Life in the Movies, out there now from A Strange Object. And uh, you can find out more over at astrangeobject.com. Uh, I believe these guys are on Twitter. JM's on Twitter. I think Michael's on Twitter. Are they on Twitter? Track them down. You know how to do that, right? You have Google. Thanks to Kill Rockstars, as always, for all the great music. Be sure to check out killrockstars.com. Go get uh, yourself a membership at the TMB Book Club. Go buy your friends TMB Book Club memberships for the Christmas holiday. Go to thenervousbreakdown.com. Click on Book Club in the menu bar. And uh, while you're at it, be sure to get the app. This show has its own app, the official Other People app. It's free. Get it on your device. It's the easiest and best way to listen. And uh, then from there, if you want to stream the full archive, sign up for premium right there within the app. It's easy. It's cheap. I would appreciate it. If you want to email me, the address is letters at otherppl.com. Letters at otherppl.com. Let me know what you think. Say something to me. So the big stuff is done. We still got to buy some furniture. It's a lot of money moving. My God. It's like I'm hemorrhaging money. <laughs> Which, and then the holidays too. You always hemorrhage money at the holidays. And I, I, I feel that hemorrhage is one of the uh, most difficult words to spell correctly. I've looked it up I don't know how many times. I still don't know how to spell hemorrhage. So it'll be good to get out to the desert, too, for this uh, guest lectureship. I like the desert in uh, winter. That's when you should go to the desert, just so you know, if you've never been. Don't go in the summer. It's too hot. And, uh, you know, with regard to this uh, academic thing, I have no idea what I'm going to say. I'm supposed to talk about the realities of trying to be a working writer, the challenges of that. I'm going to be staring out at a lot of uh, hopeful faces. And I'm going to uh, crush them. <laughs> I'm going to methodically snuff out any vestiges of hope that still uh, flicker in their eyes. That's where I'm at. It's tough. You know, like, what are you supposed to say? It's tough. I've tried everything when it comes to writing. It, you got to be like uh, the one in a million, you know, needle in a haystack. Few people can do it. Requires luck. Got to be good. Yeah. Got to work hard. Of course. Requires luck. Otherwise, uh, day jobs, writing at night, not sleeping, a readership of 773 people, every one of whom you are grateful for. And that's it. Your blog is never going to make you a million dollars. Your podcast, (laughs) probably not. But it's all useful, you know? You can't do it for money. You do it for love. That's what I'm going to say in so many words. I'm going to try not to get too dark. I already have a friend who's going to be there in the audience. And I have asked her to give me a hand signal if I'm getting too dark. And that hand signal, uh, I've asked her to uh, imitate uh, injecting heroin into her arm. 
she if she gives me the uh, syringe sign, I'm going to try to lighten things up. <laughs> the business of writing. Holy shit. So, anyhow, thanks for listening. Thanks to uh, J.M. Tyree and Michael McGriff. Thanks to A Strange Object. And uh, go get that book. It's a terrific collection. Go watch some uh, Criterion Collection movies. Maybe you could make an exercise out of it for, you know, on, 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 uh, on your own part. Immerse yourself in culture this holiday season. So I'll be back again soon from the uh, the new garage, and I will have another episode for you. Remember, one show a week, uh, new episodes rolling out on Wednesdays. That's the new schedule for now. We'll see how things go. All right? All right. <laughs>